Let me invite you to take uh, your Bible again, your copy of God's Word, and turn with me to our New Testament text this morning. It's found uh, on page 834 of your Pew Bible, page 834. We're in Matthew uh, chapter 27, and we're nearing uh, the end of this chapter. We have spent a lot of time in chapter 26 and 27, a lot of verses, a lot of ground to cover. We uh, had a somber sermon last week on the crucifixion of Jesus, and uh, today is more of the same uh, as we again uh, meet Jesus uh, upon the cross. Uh, finally, as Matthew has walked slowly through these, uh, these accounts, uh, finally we come uh, to the death uh, and uh, the burial itself. Would you follow along with me uh, as we pick up at verse 45? Uh, and read down through verse uh, 61. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Our Lord, in such a familiar text like this one, with such a familiar story, we can maybe zone out. We can maybe lose focus a little bit. We can maybe want something new and different and fresh. But I pray, Lord, that you would show us again, that you would hold before our eyes the hideousness 
and the beauty of the cross. And we would behold here this morning in these few minutes who Jesus truly is as shown to us by his death and by his burial. And seeing, would we add our confession to that of the soldiers? And would we too leave with the words on our lips, truly this is the Son of God. Show him to us. Give us faith to believe this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it's pressure that can reveal the true nature of a thing. Something can look ordinary from the outside. It can look rather pedestrian. It can look just like everyone or everything else. But then under pressure, under trial... The true worth, the true value of the thing comes out. Think of something like gold. Gold that when it's mixed in with other metals and other stuff just looks pretty ordinary. To the untrained eye, it can look just like another rock, another stone. What value is there in that? It looks just like everything else. And yet when it's placed in the refiner's fire, when the, the pressure of The heat bears down upon it and all of the impurities melt away. What does the eye then witness but precious and valuable gold? To the untrained eye, it's not much. But after pressure is applied, anyone can see what it really is. That's what happens on the cross. That is what happens with our Lord Jesus. He goes through life looking like, to the untrained eye, just an ordinary guy. He's born of a lowly woman, right? He doesn't have much impressive in his life as he grows. He's poor. He has nowhere to lay his head. He gets hungry like everybody else. He gets thirsty like everybody else. He cries and he bleeds and he's just like everybody else. And at the end of his life, he is, he is mocked as if he is a nobody, as if all of his claims of divinity and royalty are are nothing but a fool's fancy, nothing but a dream. And yet, here in the furnace of affliction, here when the pressure of the wrath of the creator of the universe is leveraged to one point in history on the head of one man, What comes out of the refiner's fire is not an ordinary rock. It's not an ordinary man. It is one to whom the witnesses, every witness must attest, this is the Son of God. But it is only upon that cross, it is only in that crucible of pressure that Jesus is revealed to us. The way that Matthew shows us who Jesus is in these verses, he shows us what happens, but again, he doesn't give us all that much. He just gives us a couple verses about what actually happens with Jesus, but then he gives us a lot of verses of what everybody else around him saw. It's as if Matthew is bringing before us a number of witnesses, and he's saying, you don't know what to see, but look what these guys see. See it through their eyes, and you will see the Son of God. It is the witnesses of Jesus' death that prove the worth of his life. 
they see this crucible of affliction. That's what I want to show you through a series of witnesses in these verses this morning that the witnesses of Jesus' death prove the worth of his life. He looks pretty ordinary until the refiner's fire of the cross and then we see his life is of immeasurable value. The witnesses of Jesus' death prove the worth of his life. The way we're going to do that is we're going to look at the death itself and then we're going to look at what all the witnesses around the cross uh, say about it. So first, just a couple of moments on the death of Jesus. Then we're going to get to the witnesses of the death of Jesus. The death itself is just there in two verses. Verses 46 and then uh, verse 50. So remember where we've left off. We left off with Jesus hanging upon his own cross. He had been condemned by the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin. He had been condemned by the Roman authorities, Pilate. He had been scourged, that is whipped. He had been marched to carry his cross until he could carry it no more and someone else had to carry it for him. He was hung upon the cross. He was left exposed to the elements to die. And if that physical pain and anguish was not enough, mounted upon the head of Jesus was the rejection and the mockery of everyone else, every other group of people, the bystanders, the Romans, the Jews. They all, at this point, mock him and leave him. Even that last verse, the robbers. That's how bad it is. The other guilty guys are mocking him. Out of his anguish then comes two cries. The first cry is in verse 46 where he quotes the psalm we sang. Psalm 22, that first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't quote the whole psalm because Psalm 22 goes on to lead to some triumph and victory. There's no triumph yet on the cross. He is quoting the anguish of the abandoned one. You know those moments in your life when you're struggling or you're suffering so much and you just don't know what to say and you don't know what to do. People ask you how you're doing and you can't answer it. And then you read a psalm and you think, there it is. <laughs> it's that right there. I think that's what's going on with Jesus. He's pulling these words from the lips of suffering David making them his own. What do they mean for Jesus? You know, this is the first time he's cried. A lot of stuff has happened to him, and he never cried out. Right? When Judas betrayed him in the garden with a kiss, he didn't cry. When Peter denied him three times, he didn't cry. When the Sanhedrin brought those ridiculous accusations against him and didn't find him guilty on any evidence but declared him guilty anyway, he didn't cry out. When Pilate delivered him, even after washing his hands, knowing that Jesus is innocent, he didn't cry out. When the people wagged their heads, when the priests mocked him, when the, when the other uh, criminals derided him upon the cross, not a word of crying out, but this, this, Agony in this final hour brings out the cry. Because he could face any of these other abandonments, but from his very own father, it's too much. 
Now, there's a theological question here that we can't quite answer. How does God the Son experience separation from God the Father when we understand the triune God is never separated, is never divided, is never split up? I don't have a great answer for you except that it's mysterious. But I can say that knowing the truth of the Trinity does not make this any less painful. Does not make Jesus' words any less real. He knew on the cross a forsakenness that has never been known and never will be known in the history of the world. He had a communion with the Father that that we could only dream of. And that communion, that fellowship, that father-son relationship, there feels severed upon the cross as he wonders and cries out, why has his Father forsaken him? And as bad as the word forsaken is, I think the worst words in this little sentence are the pronouns. And that's not just God, it's my God. It's you. Why have you forsaken me? He's not asking a theological question. He's asking a deeply personal question. He's asking a relational question about why God has separated, has removed his love, has seemingly turned his face away, symbolized in the darkness that covers the land in those three hours. For Jesus, it meant the deep experience of abandonment. What does this cry mean for you and me? What does it mean for us? I want you to see a couple things. One, in this cry that Jesus makes, we need to see the horror of sin. It is easy for us to think of sin as just a slip of the tongue here, a stray thought we shouldn't have had over there, but we're not really that bad. Right, just sort of being mean to one person and sort of sin is kind of these little things out there and it's really not all that bad. What I want you to see here is the experience of the full wrath of God poured out on sin. And it is certainly not something that's not really that bad. God is just and righteous. And he would never have someone endure this without them having deserved it because of sin. Sin earns the wrath of God. But you also need to see in this cry the cost of our salvation. The willingness of your Savior and mine to take all of it upon the cross. Not just part of it, not just a little bit. He's not just a good example of someone who loves us by dying this bad death on the cross. No, this is the exchange, the theological exchange that is deeply personal as the Son absorbs upon His own head every last payment for your sin and for mine. Jesus, like a sponge, absorbing every last drop of wrath, and so there's nothing left. The cost of our salvation is this cry of forsakenness upon the cross. And just as that is deeply personal for Jesus, it is deeply personal for us. Martin Luther has said famously, the sweetness of the gospel lives in the pronouns. He didn't just die, he died for me. He didn't just suffer, he suffered for you. Jesus knew this feeling so that those who trust in him never will. So that we don't pray, why have you forsaken me? We pray in awe and joy, why have you redeemed me? He cries these words 
so that we never have to. If the first cry is bad, the final cry seems even worse because there's, Matthew doesn't even give us any words. Look, look at verse 50. And he cried out again with a loud voice. We don't know why he cried. We don't know what he said. I, I imagine there weren't words. This is a cry of pure agony. Now, people have wondered, how could Jesus, who seems to be on the cross only for three hours, have died so quickly? Right? Usually it takes days, as horrible as that sounds. How could he have died in just a mere uh, three hours? And I, I think these two cries bookend for us the agony that he endured that no normal person enduring crucifixion would ever endure. But it also shows us that final word, the final phrase of verse 50, that Jesus cries out and he yielded up his spirit. Who's in charge of when he dies? It's not Pilate. It's not those soldiers. It's not that cross. It's not even that heartbeat. It is Jesus, the sovereign Lord of the universe, voluntarily and for our benefit, yields his life upon the cross. He says in John chapter 10, no one takes his life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. Here it is. He chooses when and where to yield up his spirit. It is a fact of history that Jesus died. But it is a truth of theology that Jesus died for me. It is a truth of theology that Jesus died for you. That this was in your place. This was in your stead. As we sang before, in my place condemned, he stood. He was forsaken so that we might be forgiven. He was deserted that you and I might be delivered. He was abandoned that we, through Christ, would know the joy of adoption. Here is the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we can look back through the lens of time and see all of these things today. But what did those who were there at the cross see then? What did they witness? I want to show you the remainder of our time, the witnesses of the death of Jesus. If you could picture these couple chapters in Matthew, almost like a court case. Jesus is, is the one being accused because he claims to be the son of God. Uh, and first comes the prosecutor, and he trots up all of the reasons Jesus is not the Son of God. And we see this over and over again, our court cases, our trials, everybody, all this mockery of Jesus. And particularly, they mock him because of his claim to be the Son of God. And so the prosecution is going after Jesus, and his final argument that surely he's not the Son of God is his death upon the cross. And Matthew patiently waits his turn. Once they're all done, and once the cross uh, appears victorious, then Matthew, as the defense attorney, steps up and says, now it's my turn to call my witnesses. And let's see what they saw. He brings forward three witnesses. He really should be bringing for, forward four witnesses, but the first group just kind of bungled their chance. Right? Uh, when Jesus cries out uh, for God, he calls God uh, Eli, Eli, right? calls him God the word for God. The bystanders think he's 
using a short name for Elijah. And so they go to run and get a sponge and, and fill it, and they're going to say, wait and see if Elijah will come and save him. And I don't think this is a moment in which they are helping Jesus by quenching his thirst. I think this is the second time we've seen Jesus appear to be thirsty, and they mock him. They have a dripping sponge ready for him to drink, but they say, now let's wait and see if Elijah comes and saves him. These guys should have been the first witnesses of the, the, the power of the cross and said they're the last in the line of the pathetic mockers of Jesus. But when man is silent, the rocks cry out. And that's the first witness that Matthew brings forward, the witness of all of nature. He brings forward the witness of all of creation. What happens in the world as Jesus is dying upon the cross? Because what happens, what creation testifies to is the death of the sovereign. They see the death of the sovereign one. They see the death of the Lord. There are four supernatural events surrounding the death of Jesus that each testify that this isn't any normal old death. All right, number one is darkness. Verse 45, there is darkness over the face of the land. It's not an eclipse. Go back and look at your moon tables. There's no eclipse that time, right? It's not a sandstorm, right? It's not just a, a cloudy day. This is a supernatural darkness of judgment. Darkness is a judgment. It happens in, uh, in Exodus, one of the ten plagues. Darkness. Here, darkness of judgment upon the land. Really, it's upon the head of Jesus. Listen how the prophet Amos puts it. Amos chapter 8, verse 9. And on that day, he's speaking of a day of judgment, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast into mourning, all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it, get this, like the morning for an only sun, and the end of it like a bitter day. Here is the darkness that represents the mourning of the death of the only son. It's as if creation itself is weeping. The second supernatural event is the tearing in two of the curtain. Verse 51. Right after Jesus dies, we read the curtain of the temple. Matthew inserts this in. Observers did not see this. They're outside at Golgotha, right? This is back inside of the city, inside the, the innermost recesses of the Holy of Holies. They, nobody can see it from there. They hear about it later. Matthew inserts it into the story. So we see this supernatural event. Now, the temple complex, you've seen pictures or maps in your Bible. You think of a place that's harder and harder to get into the closer you get to the middle. Right? There's outer courts, there's inner courts, there's doors, there's walls, there's curtains, there's holy places, there's most holy places. So as you go in, more and more people are excluded until you get to the Holy of Holies, the inner place where only the high priest goes, only once a year, and it's surrounded by a curtain so that nobody else can go in. Now when he goes in, he ties a rope around his waist just in case he dies. And they can pull him back out because no one else is going in there. That curtain that separates all of humanity from the holiest of holies, that curtain is ripped into at the death of Jesus. What does that mean? Hebrews tells us 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Let me say this as simple as I can. Y'all, we have no business getting anywhere remotely close to God. The sin that brings that three hours of curse upon the head of Jesus is the same sin that makes you and I so filthy we cannot draw near the Holy of Holies. That curtain is forever closed to us. But Jesus, in his death, makes us clean. Jesus, in his death, tears that which divides sinful people like you and me from God, and he ushers us in. Not to the front porch, not to the foyer, to the holy of holies, the heart of God. Creation is witnessing the work of the death of Jesus. The darkness, the curtain, number three, is an earthquake. We end in verse 51. The earthquakes, the rocks are split into a supernatural event there at the death of Jesus Literally, it seems like creation itself is crumbling as her creator dies. And that leads to the strangest of all four of these supernatural events, verses 52 to 53. Uh, We read here that tombs outside of Jerusalem are opened by the earthquake. And the bodies of, quote, holy ones are raised from the dead, fallen asleep there in verse 52 does not mean physically fallen asleep, that is referring to death, are raised, and then they go into the holy city, Jerusalem, and they appear to many people. That's Matthew's way of saying, if you think I'm making it up, go ask all the people that saw all those resurrected bodies. Don't ask me what's going on here, because I don't know. There's no other scripture that speaks of this. The other gospel authors don't tell us about this. And yet, Matthew just sort of offhandedly mentions it. That at the death of Jesus, the tombs are cracked and those bodies wait until the resurrection of Jesus. And when he is raised, they are raised as well. It's as if it's a preview of the new heavens and the new earth. It's as if it's a sign of the age to come. It's as if Jesus is saying, this is what happens now. Y'all just wait. Till I come back and every tomb is split open and the victorious grave is defeated and gives up the dead forever. And all of God's saints go in to his holy city, the new Jerusalem that is coming down to dwell with him forever. And this is just a half verse preview of that. We saw on Wednesday night, we read Psalm 148 about how all of creation praises the king. The angels and the humans and the the birds and the fish of the sea and creatures and kings and poor people and everyone praises Jesus. This is sort of the opposite of that. It's as if all of creation is grieving the death of their creator. It's as if creation is coming undone. As the one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand bows his head and releases his spirit. Creation bears witness that their sovereign has died. And that's just Matthew's first witness. He brings up his next one. 
He trots forward now, the centurion and the soldiers. And what do they witness? They don't witness the death of the sovereign. They witness, according to their own words, the death of the son. Verse 54, we read, When the centurion, that's the guy in charge of a hundred soldiers, and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. So they have front row seats to creation falling apart. Now they don't see the temple torn in two. They don't see the curtain torn in two. That's back in the temple. They can't see that. They don't see the bodies raised because I don't think that happens until Sunday when Jesus is raised. They do see the darkness. They do see the cry of abandonment. They do see the earthquake and they do see the the tombs split open. And they see all of this and they are filled with awe. Or they're terrified. They're terrified. A friend told me this week about uh, hiking up in these woods and an encounter with a bear. She was with somebody else, and the bear came aggressively towards them, uh, and the other person got all brave and got a stick and kind of yelled and screamed, but then my friend just froze. I mean, I wonder what y'all would do, right? Think about who you'd be in that moment. The one charging the bear or the, the one sort of frozen in the back? The soldiers are terrified, and it's not easy to terrify Roman soldiers. And they've seen it all. The centurion is probably a battle-hardened centurion. They have overseen numerous crucifixions. And yet, no matter how bad, they have never seen anything remotely like this. And they are terrified. And they say, at the end of verse 54, truly, this was the Son of God. If you had to pick anybody in all of these chapters to confess that Jesus was the Son of God, I think the centurion would be last on your list. (laughs) There's something about the gospel that goes forth to the one who was in charge of crucifying him. Those are the ones who first confess. The very thing he has been mocked for over and over again, his claim to be the Son, is now the heart of their confession. Now, I'm not sure that they knew what they were saying. I think maybe in their sort of uh, mixed-up worldview, all of this stuff happening around the death of Jesus, it at least means that he's innocent. Right? Innocent people don't die with all of this fanfare throughout creation. So maybe this is the God's way of vindicating the innocence of Jesus. I think that may be what their confession means, but they say so much more than they know because this is the confession of the Christian faith. This is the confession that echoes down for all of eternity. This is the banner under which King Jesus rides into victory. Truly, he is the Son of God on the lips of the soldiers who murdered him. And look particularly, what is it that they see that most reveals who Jesus is? Of all the teaching Jesus gave, of all the healings, of all of the miracles, here is the testimony that he is the son and it's the way in which he died. We cannot see and understand Jesus unless and until we see him upon the cross. We cannot take the cross out of the gospel. We cannot take the cross out of the Bible and think we have a good example or a wise moral teacher. We are emptying the Bible of all of its meaning. Because what they saw that convinced him that he was the son is his passion and his death. It's the way that he died. Normal people don't die like this. 
Normal rocks do not go into the furnace and come out looking like a golden nugget. But Jesus does. And he is the Son of God. The powerful soldiers see it. The chorus of all of creation sees it. But our final witness is the most surprising of all. Matthew brings forward a humble group of people. Matthew brings forward folks whose voice usually doesn't matter in a courtroom. And those are the women. Our final witnesses in verses 55 to 61 are the women. And what they witness in particular is the death of the seed. Not the sovereign, not particularly the son, but they witness the death of the seed. Look how Matthew introduces us to these women. Verse 55. There were also many women there. Hold on. Matthew, you've been telling me for weeks that everybody's leaving Jesus. Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. The other guys turn tail and run. Right? His, his, his Jewish friends leave him. The Roman government leaves him. Everybody leaves him. Even God himself, it appears. And then there's the women who are there apparently every step of the way, who are faithfully there watching and waiting on Jesus. Among the women is Mary Magdalene, the, the one that he has healed, one of his uh, disciples. Mary, the mother of James uh, and Joseph. This is not Mary, Jesus' mother. There's, there's too many Marys to keep track of, right? It's like all the Caesars in the Bible. Uh, all these Marys, there's apparently at least four of them. Mary Magdalene, this Mary, who verse 61 calls the other Mary, and then there's Jesus' mother, and then there's Mary, Mary to Clopas, who's in one of the other gospel stories. And then there's finally someone not named Mary, the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, Salome. We meet her in other accounts. They're following Jesus. They're watching. Their purpose for this isn't exactly God's purpose. I think their purpose is, number one, I think they're, they're a friend, Right? They are a friend in a time of need from a distance. They are grieving the death of their rabbi, of their teacher, of their leader. Uh, they, we know from other accounts that they want to give him a proper uh, Jewish treatment for burial. So they're watching and sort of waiting for their uh, opportunity to do that. Though all leave Jesus, these humble women remain faithful to him. But God has a unique purpose for them. And God's unique purpose for the women is to see where he died and where he was buried and where he will be raised from the dead. We need someone who sees it all. We need eyewitnesses who knows where he died, who knows where he's buried, who knows where his resurrection will happen. There's lots of reasons people don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. One reason that people give is that when the disciples went Sunday morning to find Jesus, they went to the wrong tomb. And the tomb was empty. And they created a religion that's existed for 2,000 years because they went to the wrong address, right? Seems far-fetched. The reason it could not have happened is because of these women. If they had gone to the wrong tomb, the ladies would have said, it's this tomb, guys. <laughs> he's been here the whole time, and now he's gone. And God chose women whose testimony was not heard in court, to give testimony to the watching world where Jesus was buried and where he rises from the dead. The women see, whether they know it or not, the witness of the seed, the seed that dies, 
and the seed that is raised again from the dead. The seed that is buried that then comes to life. Who John speaks, I'm sorry, Jesus speaks of himself in John 12 when he says a grain of wheat dies and then it bears much fruit. Our passage ends with this word of hope that they're watching. And though it is just a tomb, though it is just a seed buried in the ground, that seed will soon come back to life. Hope that the seed that is buried will live again. If we're to go back to the courtroom, Matthew, take off his glasses, he'd put down his notes, and he'd say, The defense rests. He is the sovereign, he is the son. He is the seed. But now the question is for us. Who do you say that Jesus is? The witnesses are clear. The testimony is before our very eyes. But who do you say that he is? Some say he's a a good example of how to live our lives. And if we can try and work hard and, and be like Jesus and follow his example, uh, we will live a good life and God will uh, approve of us. Good men don't die like this. Some say he's a wise prophet. He's got lots of good teaching. He interprets the Old Testament. He brings religion from the ancient world into the modern world and how we can sort of follow him. But I tell you again, wise prophets don't die like this. Some say he is... Uh, simply a good moral teacher. If we follow his good moral teaching of right and wrong, then we will somehow be good enough and right in the eyes of God. Moral teachers don't die like this. This is the death of the sovereign, the death of the son, the death of the seed, the death of God for the sins of the whole world. The witnesses of Jesus' death prove the worth of of his life. You cannot know Jesus without knowing his death. And you cannot know his death without heeding and hearing these witnesses. So let us join their confession and believe together. Truly, this is the Son of God. You pray with me. Our Lord, we are a weak and feeble and we have a hard time believing the truth before our very eyes. And we thank you, O oh God, that you condescend to us, that you give us gospel accounts like this one, so that our blind eyes may see and our deaf ears may hear and our hard hearts might believe. Lord, give us eyes of faith to see the death of Jesus through the lens of creation and the centurion and the women. Give us eyes that see and believe that he is who you say that he is. And would we rejoice today that where our Savior was buried is now empty. He is risen again to life everlasting to take us with him. Amen.